Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. It is a pleasure this morning to be joined by one of New Zealand's best and most humble adventure races and endurance coach, Dougal Allen. Dougal most recently came second in the Coast to Coast Longest Day with a busted ankle, which we will get to, after a surprise entry by Braden Curry, who took the win, but has previously taken the win of Coast to Coast in both 2019 and 2021. He's also had a crack at God Zone with his team placing second, last year and to be fair all his accomplishments in New Zealand and internationally is far too long for this introduction. (laughs) So actually Dougal why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, where you grew up and where your passion for endurance sport began. Morena Krishla thank you for the introduction and for having me on your show. Um, Been a big fan of what you do for a while now so it's a privilege to be involved. yeah, as far as introducing myself goes, it's uh, I'm getting to that point now where I start to feel old if I t- talk too much about how long I've been in the sport and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I, I guess I started multi-sport late for for what most people would consider, you know, to be an elite athlete. We sort of assume people start from a young age, but I was just rugby and basketball and team sports growing up. And it was 2006, which was my final year studying in Dunedin at university, that I discovered multi-sport. So uh, I guess I was probably about 21 years old when I found the sport. And um, so that's now, yeah, 16 years ago. But um, in those 16 years, I've been lucky to travel to different parts of the world and compete in events across sort of a range I guess of endurance sports so Ironman adventure racing which is sort of the team aspect of multi-sport and of course the individual um, multi-sport races which are big in New Zealand but also there's multi-sport events in other parts of the world so over that 16 years I've yeah as I say been really lucky to compete um, at an elite level in a range of sports and and I'm not really one to sort of uh, think too much about results, but I certainly reflect on the places I've been and the people I've met and those sorts of things. So, yeah, consider myself very, very lucky. Mm. So more a team sport background as a, I guess, yeah, growing up. Was there a specific event or was it studying? Did you study in Dunedin? Yeah, yeah, I was studying in Dunedin. And I actually had concussion problems with rugby. So um, it, it it's... Not that long ago, but in a way, it's a long time ago because back then um, it wasn't that well understood. And I went to a doctor about my concussions, and he didn't really have any answers for me. And to cut a long story short, it, it was a decision that was left for me to make, which I'm so thankful I did at the time because I probably still made it a bit too late. Perhaps I, I'd had some pretty bad concussions by that stage. 
But uh, I'd like to think nowadays there's a lot more information and support for athletes that are having concussion problems. But anyway, that that sort of uh, pushed me away from rugby, but drew me towards multi-sport, which uh, Dunedin was such a fantastic place to run. I joined the University Harriers Club and started running up Signal Hill and Ross Creek and those sorts of places. And um, yeah, got into mountain biking and and. Um, eventually got into kayaking and I love telling the story because I um, bought my first kayak I think I paid about $800 for this kayak and I didn't know anything about kayaks I just saw one for sale in Dunedin and bought it and it was from a woman who was doing medicine at the time called Sophie Hart and of course (laughs) Sophie's now you know multiple coast to coast and God's own uh, and adventure racing world champion but um, that's sort of my claim to fame as I bought my first kayak from Sophie Hart yeah that's awesome and she's just did they win it they just won god's own again i think they may have won four or five of them now and and they've got about i think sophie and nathan's team of air which was formerly seagate may have about four world titles to their name as well so very very successful Wow, that is, yeah, so impressive. And have they, that uh, their God's Own team, have they stayed that exact team the whole time they've gone through God's Own or have they kind of shuffled a few team members around? I'm not sure. Yeah, they've, uh, certainly in recent years, it's been the same combination with Chris Vaughan and Stu Lynch. Um, maybe early on it wasn't exactly that combination, but yes, certainly in the last few years that's been the combination and I, I can't think of a team on the world stage that could beat them when they're when they're doing their thing. You know, it's something to take a lot of pride in as a Kiwi is just how good those guys are. Yeah, so amazing. Can't believe what they've just done. <laughs> just I know, incredible. I think they may have won by maybe 10 hours this time or something like that. So oh, Just 10 yeah. hours, nothing, nothing major, yeah. <laughs> Totally. Um, in your time in Dunedin, because we all love reflecting on that, the Scarfy days, did you have any, like, did you flat on um, any of the famous streets in Dunedin or have some horrible flatting stories? Yeah, yeah, I flatted on Clyde Street and I flatted on Leith Street North, I think. So, nice. yeah, Clyde Street <laughs> in my bedroom was the size literally of my double bed. I didn't even have space for some drawers or anything. I think I kept my clothes in the hallway cupboard. So, yeah, definitely um, lived the scarfy life for a few years and they are definitely some of the best years of your life, I reckon. But um, I don't know if I could go back to flatting in North Dunedin these days. I think my standards have gone up a bit. Yeah, yeah, nah, such good times though, and I think you have to kind of embrace it and, yeah, just enjoy it while you're down there. I mean, you certainly just have to get used to being cold all the time, and um, I remember going into some flats, they luckily weren't my own, but, like, the bedrooms would be on a slope, like, you could roll a ball down the dining room, like, it was terrible, there'd be holes in walls. (laughs) Those flats are probably still in their current state now. Yeah, yeah, shocking. Um... Okay, so that's where it all began for you. If we skip forward a little bit um, to some of your more recent events, can you, you you wrote the most amazing blog on your Coast to Coast this year. I'd encourage anyone who hasn't read it to go and read it. But can you talk us through your day a little bit more and in a bit more detail around what happened? Was it your ankle or was it a foot injury? Yeah, it was an ankle. So I just did a classic roll of the ankle. Um, it, it happened not long after going over Goat Pass. So people that know that run will picture in their mind when you go over the actual pass after the hut, you're running across boardwalks. And it's obviously 
very spectacular. You're seeing the east coast of the divide for the first time. And then there's a really um, steep and sort of loose descent that follows the boardwalks. And so that was where I, I did it. Basically, I was running uh, behind Sam Matson, and he's a really classy downhill runner. So I was probably um, going at his speed rather than mine. And, um, yeah, went over on my right ankle. I had my ankle strapped, but um, unfortunately the, the force that I turned my ankle um, ripped all the strapping tape off my foot, basically. And, uh, yeah, I, I knew it wasn't just your classic ankle sprain. When I stood up and put weight on it, I thought this is probably a bit worse than the sort of sprained ankles that I've done in the past. But I also knew that I wasn't going to achieve much by sort of standing around dwelling on it. So I just kept moving, essentially, is what I did. I knew um, it was either that or wait for a helicopter. And I, I didn't feel like it was sore enough to wait for a helicopter. So I thought I'll just run out to Klondike Corner or to Granny's and and then that might be the end of my day. But as I continued to run, it wasn't uh, super comfortable, but I was still moving and I wasn't losing sight of Sam. So to cut a long story short, I I got through the run and then I knew it was biking and kayaking from there. So I just kept going basically and then um, got across the finish line before going and getting x-rays done. So um, I'd broken a bone, a cuboid, and uh, I'd um, fully ruptured a few ligaments and partially ruptured quite a few other ligaments. So, um, yeah, I was in a moon boat, and that was the end of my season. I can't believe you still finished the race with all that. Fire it. You must have been in a fair bit of pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I was definitely in pain, but I was also conscious that I didn't want to accept perhaps the extent of it because the moment I felt like if I allowed my mind to uh, accept that uh, my ankle wasn't good, it would probably become a factor. Whereas I, it, I can't honestly say the ankle was a huge factor in my performance on the day. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know either whether I've um, prolonged the rehab journey by continuing or not. And if I have, I also don't know if I regret that or if I'd do it all again kind of thing so um yeah it's been an interesting experience and I've also to add to that um in the YMAC Classic which was about a month before the coast to coast I um I did a bit of an awkward high brace stroke which is a bit of a no-no in kayaking and um I I tore my um joint capsule the cartilage inside my shoulder and uh, a tendon, supraspinatus. So I didn't know that at the time my physio was quite clever and sort of didn't, uh, he sort of played down the extent of the shoulder. And then it was after the coast to coast that we went and got that scan. So I'm sort of dealing with the ankle and the shoulder at the moment, but you might as well do one big rehab rather than <laughs> two, right? Oh, still hard though, far out. And I just wanted to come back because you mentioned that with the ankle you'd strapped it, but it was you rolled it so hard that it sort of pulled all the tape off. Is strapping your ankle something you'd normally do for Goats Pass? Yeah, for me, probably for the last sort of six or seven years of coast to coasting, I've strapped my ankles. Mm. Um, I haven't got great ankles, to be honest. I've, I've got a bit of an average left ankle too and an even more average right ankle now, but... Um, yeah, so for me, I strap them in a way that I still get really good uh, plant flexion, but that they sort of support that lateral movement. And um, my physio's in my support crew too, so he knows kind of quite clearly how I like the strapping tape to feel for me. And it's sort of a safety net, I suppose, because 
the the crazy thing is without the strapping tape they reckon I was fully um I would have dislocated my ankle completely so that definitely would have been the end of my day so thank goodness I did have the strapping tape on yeah goodness and lucky maybe for you because being a very strong cyclist were you quite happy with how the rest of the day had been adjusted for the weather with that longer ride like did that kind of work in your favor yeah I don't know I I was certainly there to race the the true course like we all were I guess well all except one but we can talk about that later and uh kayaking is definitely my my favorite sport now my favorite sports changed a lot over the years but currently it is kayaking and I just love the Waimakariri River I love being on that river and, and spending time just in that zone paddling the full 70k so I didn't dwell on the fact obviously you can't dwell on course changes they're out of your control but um yeah I think if I could have chosen the A course I would have mm. and that course change favoring one person that being Braden Curry <laughs> um when you found out about that like was that the day before the race that you found out Braden was in it uh, it was on the Thursday so I'd heard a few rumors that he was looking to enter and uh, it surprised me because I had seen him on the Tuesday of race week and um at that point he he wasn't planning to race he joked about it but he wasn't planning to race so um yeah on the Thursday with the rumors circulating I just texted Braden and said what, what's going on are we racing and he said he was on his way up and that um provided the course wasn't the plan a course he was going to be on the start line so it was clear to me that he was coming for the course change and uh I've been pretty clear since the race that I I don't agree that athletes should be able to enter um late based on a course change uh but you know he's a professional athlete his Ironman plan a race had been cancelled and he took his opportunity so mm. I can't blame him for that mm, mm, definitely yeah and if it had been course a he wouldn't have done it then because of the kayak no oh, no right. well those were his words to me as yeah. if, if we're paddling 70k I'm not racing so yeah. um yeah I guess he hadn't been paddling for four, five or six years so um you can kind of get your way through 30k but um there's nowhere to hide on a 70k pedal mm, mm. and with your rehab at the moment with both the shoulder and the ankle are you still managing to do some you know kayaking or anything or you're just completely off like what does your rehab and training look like at the moment yeah i um i did write a blog actually recently on um setbacks and uh that's on the precision hydration website but one of the things I talked about and this was before I was injured so it's kind of ironic because I'm taking my own advice now but with uh, race cancellations and injuries or anything you want to consider a setback was I, I'm a believer that you've, you've got to focus on what you can do and, and less so on what you can't so that's been what I've tried to do since coast to coast and I've been able to do quite a lot of stuff so Initially, it was really minimal stuff in the gym, you know, a lot of uh, isometric work for my shoulder and, um, you know, little sort of balancing movements and things on my foot. Uh, and then now it's sort of evolved to a point where I'm on the wind trainer. It was on just flat pedals in my sneakers and now it's back into clip-in shoes. Um, I'm doing a lot more in the gym. Um, I'm kayaking. And so really, as it currently stands, about a month post Coast to Coast, the two things I can't do are running and swimming, but um, everything else I'm able to do. So that's that's been good. Mm, that that is good. Keeps you sane. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, exercise is definitely a, a mental, um, you know, there's as much, if not more, mental benefits to physical. So uh, it's been good mentally, but also um, it's amazing to see the progress that happens when you're diligent with your rehab. And I'm, I'm someone who gets really focused on the process and, and doing the stuff right here and now, whether there's, you know, a race around the corner or not. And currently there's not. So I'm, um, I'm pretty motivated to do the rehab well. And um, that's currently where I'm putting all my time and energy with my exercise. And you were, of course, planning to do God's Own with the top sport team, but with the injuries, that was a bit of a change of course for you. But would that have been like from after God's Own, you would have had a bit of a break anyway? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Yep, yep. And now having seen the way the course sort of unfolded, I would have been having a big break, I think, because it looked brutal. Uh, oh, um, looked so yeah. hard. Do you think, would you say that that looks like the t- uh, toughest God's Own ever? Definitely, without a doubt. I mean, my longest adventure racing experiences have been around five and a half days, I think. And and I think Top Sport were out there for over seven. Well, yeah, they won the race in seven. So they must have been out there for around eight, which, yeah, that would have been almost two and a half days longer than anything I've ever done. So, yeah, look, it just looked brutal. And was God's Own last year your longest ever adventure race? It was pretty similar to one that I'd done in Brazil, actually with Nathan Fave's team um, a few years ago. So, yeah, sort of around that five and a half day mark. Awesome. Gosh, you've been everywhere racing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, it's funny funny you say that because I remember sitting down with my initial, my first coach, Val Burke, back in 2009 in Wanaka, and she just started coaching me, so she wanted to sort of focus on what my long-term goals were. And all I could sort of say to her, because I really had no kind of clear ambition with the sport, but I did say I really want to travel. If my sport can show me the world, that would be the biggest success to me. And little did I know, because I, I think I'd been to Australia at that age. I'd literally, yeah, Australia's as far as I'd gone. Um, I could never have imagined the places sport's taken me since. So that's that's pretty cool. Mm. That is so cool. I didn't know you'd been to Brazil as well because I, I hear a lot about like the China adventure races and things, but yeah, I guess you can go anywhere with racing. Yeah, yeah, and not just go anywhere, but also when you do go places, it's what you see and, and where those events take you, you know. it's not We're not talking London or New York. We're talking these crazy little mountains and tiny little villages and, the yeah, the things you see and, and the people you sort of uh, bump into along the way are just um, so outside of the ordinary. It's That's a really cool thing about the sport. It's really off the beaten track, yeah. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's what's so cool about any sort of adventure racing, or even just like running or mountain biking. Like you get to places even within your own country you would never otherwise see. And that's, yeah, pretty cool part of the sport. Absolutely. I think um, one quick story that jumps to mind on that note is um, racing in China with my teammates. And um, we had been running up through this bushy trail up in the mountains for a few hours, like we hadn't seen any evidence that people had ever lived in that part of the world. And then um, the craziest thing, we um, came across this lady, she was about three foot tall and looked about 100 years old, and she was walking through the bush and she had this enormous bull, like as in a cattle beast bull, and um, had a little 
rope attached to its little nose ring and she's just walking up in the mountains this tiny little old lady with this huge big bull and we just for the next hour just talked amongst ourselves as we we're running about like where she was from and how she sort of survived and what her life must look like it was just fascinating that's amazing did you stop and say hi <laughs> well we sort of we were quite startled as we ran past her and we would have expected the same reaction from her but she she barely looked at us she was just happily doing her thing oh. four foreign people and lycra sprint past her and she didn't really seem all that fussed by it that's pretty cool the stuff you'd see yeah yeah awesome with with your own disciplines Dougal and adventure racing you're a very very strong cyclist but you say you really love your kayaking so has the cyclist just evolved over time and it now it's something you're really strong at or have you all you know worked on your cycling since way back when you started back in Dunedin yeah, I, I was a runner initially, um, loved my running, and then, you know, picked up a bike and, uh, yeah, a mountain bike, and, and then actually I got my first road bike in 2005, and I remember that because Jack Bauer bought his first road bike at the same time. We were sort of flatmates by studying PE together, and, of course, Jack went on to race Tour de France, and, you know, he's probably one of New Zealand's most successful cyclists, but here we were at the age of probably 12, we we're both about 20 buying our first road bikes. So that's crazy to think about. But I would have to say Val Burke, who was my first coach, she coached me for eight years. Um, I would credit her a lot with my um, trajectory that I took with cycling. I, yeah, I really improved pretty quickly. And through physiological testing and stuff, she, she always said to me that I had a lot of potential in the sport, which I can credit probably my genetics to for a large part. But I did love riding my bike. So yeah, um, cycling became my strength. And then, as I say, I, I sort of um, became really uh, yeah, engaged, I guess, with kayaking and probably my second life in multi-sport, which basically is how I describe it because I did coast-to-coast coast for six years, then had a six-year hiatus where I did Ironman and triathlon, and then I came back in 2019 for another stint with coast-to-coast. Coast. And since that 2019 comeback, I've been really engaged in my paddling and just really love my kayaking. And again, I'd probably credit my now coach, Gordon Walker, who's well known for her his uh, coaching with Lisa Carrington, for my ability to improve a lot in the boat. So, yeah. Wow, that's cool. So you don't coach yourself? No, no. I've always had a coach and I've been so lucky because I've had Val Burke and then it was uh, Bevan McKinnon and Tim Brazier from Fitter Coaching for a period of time. And then I, when I moved back to multi-sport, it sort of made sense to look for a multi-sport coach. And yeah, that was when I enlisted Gordon Walker. So yeah, I've got the PE degree and I, I'm a coach myself, but I'm a big believer that um, everyone um, benefits from having a coach and, and that oversight and that second set of eyes and that bigger picture thinking and all those things that come from having a coach and the accountability, if I'm honest. I need to get out the door when it's raining and if I don't have a coach, I'm probably a bit less likely to do that. Yeah, yeah, definitely need that. Kick up the bum now and again. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, you're also very good at your running and something you do enjoy too. And you were meant to be doing Kepler last December before it got moved due to lovely COVID. Will you be back at Kepler this year? I'd love to do Kepler. I, um, I've always wanted to do the Kepler. 
So um, it was on the hit list, as you say, and then it got shifted to January, which was just a bit too close for me to the coast to coast. But yeah, if it's um, going ahead again in December, I'm pretty sure I'll be on that start line. Will I be seeing you there? I'm, I haven't decided, actually. I um, okay. Obviously, entries come out July, and Kepler is a week out from the wild, that new race down south as well. So I'm deciding whether I'll do both or whether I should prioritise one. I'm just not sure. But Kepler is so cool. Like, I, oh, yeah, I'd love to be back there. Nice. Yeah, it was cool following you and Dan and a bunch of the others, Simon Earle, if he listens to this. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those kind of iconic endurance events in New Zealand day. Eh? So for that reason alone, I, I really want to make sure I do it while I'm still, um, you know, semi-competitive, I suppose. Yeah, give Dan a run for his money. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, possible. I don't know if there's anyone on the planet that can give Dan a run for his money at the moment, but uh, you never know. Oh, he, might, he might break his ankle yeah. and then we've all got a chance. <laughs> yeah, no, he's incredible. Yeah. Um, so what is next for you then? Obviously some rehab, bit of relax. And then what's next? Well, well, Kushla, your, your podcast is going to be the first official announcement of what I've got planned oh. for, uh, for the, well, the Northern Hemisphere season, I guess you'd call it. But, um, yeah, I'm hoping to get across and do the Red Bull Defiance in Queensland with Simone Meyer, which is in August. And then the plan at this point would then be to travel on to the UK and do Ironman Wales. So that's a bit left field. Um, and I've got a commitment in Switzerland of all places to do some training with someone over there who's planning to come and do the coast to coast. And so, yeah, that's sort of my um, New Zealand winter game plan at this stage. So uh, definitely a bit of incentive to get this rehab done well and done properly and then hopefully racing again from August. Wow, that is cool. So racing with Simone in Queensland, is it just the two of you or is it part of a bigger team? No, nah, the Defiance, and we used to have the Red Bull Defiance in Wanaka too, of course, but that's no longer. But the um, Aussie version is also two-person format, so we'll be competing in the mixed category. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, Simone and I have raced together a lot, and typically in places like China where it's four-person and we've raced with Sam Clark and Sam Manson and things. But, um, yeah, we haven't really had too many opportunities, obviously, in the last few years to race together, so it's really exciting to think we'll get another go because yeah we um I think we bring the best out of each other Simone and I and we understand each other well and yeah I've really missed that. Would you train a bit together being both down in Monica or? Well not as much as you would expect um I'm a bit of a recluse she's a bit of a recluse and, and she's a bit of a nomad too she'll spend time in Monica but she also loves to um, spend time in other parts of New Zealand so yeah we don't connect as often as we'd like but we certainly do keep keep in touch even if it's just for coffee and that sort of thing we're good friends mm, yeah nice and do you know anything about what this red bull defiance will involve in queensland or is it sort of a surprise no they they've got the course on the website it's the same each year um i couldn't honestly tell you what what the course is off the top of my head but it's um there's a rafting stage on the tully river which i'm excited about because it's sort of a um world-renowned sort of touristy river for what water rafting um, and then, yeah, trail running, mountain biking, sea kayaking, that sort of thing. So up in that part of Queensland, it'll be, I think, a pretty cool and different sort of racing experience to what we're used to around central Otago and the South Island. 
Oh, how cool. Yeah, and exciting to get out of New Zealand and do some travel again and international racing. So hope it all goes smoothly. And what makes you go to Wales of all places to do a triathlon? Well, I, to be honest, I, I was looking, because I do need to be going across to Europe in September for other commitments, but I was looking at um, some multi-sport sort of adventure-type events because, you know, when you trade in your favourite sport of kayaking for your least favourite sport of swimming, it's <laughs> something I try not to do if I can avoid it. But there just wasn't anything um, that that sort of looked like it would work. And so why I chose Wales as an Ironman is it just looks really hard. I just like sort of courses that are really physically testing. I've done triathlons like the Embraman in France, which has, I think, a about 5,000 metres of climbing on the bike and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I just I just like the look of the Wales course, so that's why I chose it. I can imagine it would be hilly and narrow roads, sharp corners. <laughs> Absolutely. <of> <laughs> yeah. The, the, the multi-sport is triathlon. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> well, that's exciting. And how cool to have it announced on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I haven't even told my sponsors. I think I told my wife. I hope I told my wife. I hope she doesn't find out by listening to the podcast. Will your family be going with you over to the UK? Uh, probably no, they won't come to Europe. Um, they might come to Australia though because um, my wife Amy's actually from Australia. So if we can tie in some sort of a family trip as well, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, nice. That would be great. Yeah, a bit of a family holiday. Cool. Totally. Um, I was really interested or quite keen to talk to you about mental well-being and something you wrote in your blog on Coast to Coast um, caught my attention. You write so well, by the way, in your blog because it's just Thank yeah, you. it's great. Um, but you did mention about anxiety. So I'd love to hear how, how that's been going, especially um, coming off a race and being injured and dealing with that as an elite athlete. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, yeah, and I, I've got to be a little bit careful when I call it anxiety because I, I haven't had any you know, medical diagnosis or anything, but certainly everything um, I experienced at the time and continue to deal with now would suggest quite strongly that it's a form of anxiety. Um, and so essentially through the summer, I, I've noticed in the last few years, racing to me was just always about um, the love of racing purely just getting the most from myself and often just you know racing the course and seeing what happened from there but as I've sort of evolved it's it's kind of a case of being a victim of your own success in a way because you know you have success and then you build sponsors and with sponsorship comes expectation and I've sort of come to a point now with my racing where it's it's not quite as um pure and, and based just first and foremost on enjoyment. I, I create a lot of expectation on myself and, and there's a lot more pressure in my own mind leading into big races. And I think this year was unique because we haven't been able to go overseas and race for a couple of years. So all of a sudden the coast to coast was an eight month project for me. So you spend a long time building up in your own mind and obviously through your training for one day. So I could sense kind of as we closed in on that tricky Christmas, New Year period, I've got young kids and, and there's a lot of sort of social opportunities that I was probably struggling in my own mind to kind of cope with everything. And then alongside that, um, my wonderful wife had taken a, um, a career in real estate and was doing really well at it. So 
we were we were just full noise, I suppose. Um, and with my coaching hat on, I was getting quite, um, you know, uh, focused on my athletes. And as a coach, I think a lot of coaches would agree, you, you can never really put things to bed. You're always thinking about your athletes and, you know, that is that sore foot likely to be a stress reaction? Should I cut their running back? Should I get them to push on? Is it nothing? So everything sort of started to build up. And the, the first warning sign for me was I just couldn't sleep. I was going to bed and I was just lying awake for hours and hours. Some Sometimes I would literally go to bed and lie there awake until the five o'clock alarm went off and we're back into it. And I had to get on my bike and do a training session and, it wasn't, it wasn't good. I knew it wasn't healthy, but I was also, um, you know, on this, on this journey towards coast to coast. And I, I couldn't just jump off it, you know, I was fully committed. So in a way that, that compounded it further and, uh, you know, you, you sort of feel almost a bit trapped. So being a male, you sort of just pretend everything's okay and you soldier on, but I knew things weren't okay. And, and luckily my wife, um, who's always been my biggest supporter sort of sat me down and said, you know, we need to look at changing some things here. It's, it's not sustainable. And um, that's what we did. So part of that process for me has been um, cutting back on my coaching commitments. Um, firstly, because as I say, we just had too much going on. And secondly, because Amy's always done everything to support me and now watching her flourish in real estate and love what she's doing it just seems so right and natural to cut my own workload back so that I can support her so it's a bit of a long-winded explanation but um, I think I just lost balance and um, probably didn't quite uh, manage things before they got to the point where I yeah as I say I wasn't sleeping and my, my heat game leading into the coast to coast wasn't flash, but um, I'm proud of the fact that I got there and I still showed up on the day and, and raced pretty well, I think. But um, there were times where that was definitely in doubt, if I'm honest. I, I, there were times, especially in January, as race day grew closer, where I confided in Amy that I just couldn't see how I'd even get to the start line and and that um, that was sort of as bad as it got, really. So we got there in the end and... It's amazing because I did mention the anxiety in my blog, but it's it's pretty humbling to think how many people have since reached out, um, whether it's just been to say, hey, I, I see you've had some problems with your anxiety and just so you know, I'm there too. I deal with it too and, and, it's, and they normalise it for me. Um, right through to people putting me on to really good resources and even people that they recommend I talk to and that sort of thing. So... It's, it's been a pretty cool um, experience on the other side of that blog, just having people reach out in that way. Mm. It, it's so nice to hear you talk about that because I think, especially with social media, you know, we see people doing all these amazing things and, um, you know, if you looked from the outside, you'd think, oh, you know, Dougal's just done the most amazing race. He did it even being injured. He's, you know, doing his amazing, amazing coaching business. But the truth is you never know what someone else is, is going through or struggling with. And I think it's so nice to hear even people like yourself who, you know, you still, there's basically a, you know, continuum of mental health and we all sit along different parts of that at different times. 
Um, so no, thanks for talking about that. And do you feel like, I mean, leading up to coast to coast, probably not the best mentally or in recovery, especially with sleep, you know, not ideal, but do you feel like now you're in a better place with that and having cut back your coaching slightly? Definitely, definitely. And I'm sleeping so much better and I, I don't know if that's because I'm, I've got better tools now with, with anxiety or whether I just got through coast to coast and was so sleep deprived, my body just had no choice but to sleep. It's probably a combination of both. Probably, yeah, having better tools, but also just being so exhausted at the end of once everything was said and done. Um, but yeah, it's it's nice to now be sleeping again and realise just how important sleep is because, yeah, it's amazing how much more energy and, and focus you've got when you've had a night's sleep. Funny that, eh? <laughs> well, isn't it shocking because when you're stressed or anxious, you know, you start to sleep poorly and then with poor sleep, it makes everything so much worse and everything's just, your mood's not as good, everything's more of a struggle. So sleep is just the magic pill, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I think too, because I'm a coach, it's been, um, dare I say it, good for me too, you know, like it's not that uncommon for people that choose endurance sport to either choose it to help them deal with certain, you know, anxieties or depressions or mental situations or they um, come into the sport and, and it leads to such challenges because, you know, most people have nine to five jobs and or families and or three sports to train for. So, yeah, they do. It's very common, I think, in the endurance space to have um, mental health challenges. And for me to be going through that myself, I think, as a coach, gives me hopefully more empathy and, and maybe a better understanding to help manage my athletes in the future. Yeah, definitely. Did you help, like, did you talk to anyone or anything like that? did a session with a psychologist and, and that was really cool and um and now I'm yeah I'm reading and I'm I'm talking to be honest I'm talking a lot more to people and um I wasn't good at the time like I didn't communicate it to my coach which is embarrassing to admit uh but that would be something I would say um as if you do have a coach um if they're the right person for the job they will always want to know exactly what you're dealing with like for my coach not to know for example that I'm doing my long ride off no sleep the night before uh, that wasn't really fair on him so um, yeah talking's been the big one and being really open which is why as I say for this podcast I'm I'm delighted to be able to talk openly about it. Mm-hmm. And for anyone I mean there'll be heaps of people listening well I was joking at the start I probably have like two listeners and it's probably my mum and dad. <laughs> but for anyone who is listening and might be struggling with mental health or anxiety would you just say like you know talk about it and reach out to someone who you know can help or yeah um it's amazing how many people I now notice talking openly about their own anxiety not just athletes but um people in the community or um people I might follow that are musicians for example so yeah for me, I would probably now, yeah, I'll do a lot differently. And one of the things I would do differently is go to a, a friend that I know and I trust that perhaps I also know has had challenges with anxiety before and just to ask them what first steps they might suggest. Um, people might listen to me and they're more than welcome to obviously private message me if, if they want to know what sort of first steps I'd now recommend they take. But yeah, I'm probably less so someone to 
go the generic route and, you know, call the phone number that you talk to a stranger. Not saying that's a bad thing at all. It's wonderful that we've got those um, resources for people. But my personal way of doing things, generally speaking, is I go to a, a friend or someone I know, especially someone I trust, that has dealt with something similar and ask them where they would suggest I go first. And I'm like that with everything. I'm like that, say, with nutrition. I wouldn't type in how much carbohydrate should I eat for a marathon, I'd probably go to you and say, hey, this is what I'm looking to try and sort out. What do you recommend? Where, where should I read about it? That sort of thing. So, mm. yeah, that's just how I operate. Mm. Yeah, no, respect that. And, yeah, it's, um, it's all relative, isn't it? Because, you know, we... <laughs> You could say, oh, I, I can't be, you know, down or, or sad because people out there have it so much worse than me, especially when you start looking at what's going on in the world. But that's not the best way to think of it because to you at that time, it could be, you know, some of the hardest things you're going through. And it's it's saying it's almost like saying to someone, you know, you can't be happy because someone else out there has it better than you. They're happier, you know. Um, so I think it's, um, you know, your feelings are valid and, yeah, reaching out to people who you feel comfortable enough to talk to. Because although there are qualified professionals out out there who absolutely um you know we need to speak to as well can be hard obviously to build that rapport and actually be open with them for quite a while so a trusted friend sure. or someone you can you know maybe have a bit of a conversation with is a good starting point for sure for sure yeah yeah are you um so would you say you're in a pretty good place now and um pull back on your coaching a little bit and yeah definitely yeah, definitely yeah. and and I guess um, also with the New Zealand season, um, the big events have sort of now happened for the most part. There's still a few events to come, but it also means that um, there's less of that kind of pressure cooker with my athletes leading into their events. So we're in that sort of off-season phase now where we can take a real step back and, and, and be a bit more patient in what we're trying to achieve from this point. So, yeah, definitely um, in a better place. And, um I have cut back on the coaching, but uh, I love coaching. So I am obviously still coaching and, and enjoying working with the athletes I've currently got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I only hear very good things from the people I know who have been coached by you. So I'm sure. Oh, thank yeah. you. And I think too is um, having your own business and, you know, it's all on you. It, it can be a lot of pressure and that can be, you know, that can produce a lot of anxiety because you want everyone to be happy with the hard work you put into them and, yeah, it, it can be a bit of a balancing act, that's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, mm. yeah. yeah. And it's funny too with coaching because, as you say, you want to give them a service they appreciate, but your job as a coach isn't just to say good things either, is it? It's to pull them up on things. It's to, you know, tell them off if they need telling off. So, yeah, it's a it's a funny industry to be in because, yeah, there's a, there's a lot at play, but at the end of the day, you want the best for your athlete, and sometimes the best for your athlete isn't telling them what they want to hear. <laughs> it's telling them what perhaps they might already know, but either way, they don't want to hear it. So, mm. yeah, yeah. But that's why you have. But that's why they have you as a coach. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but you've also got to hope that you're telling them the right stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. who knows? Who knows? Being self-employed is tricky, as you know, because. Um, you know, if I'm in an office with colleagues, I can lean on them and, and have my work critiqued. But, um, yeah, as a self-employed coach, you're sort of backing yourself but also um, always second-guessing yourself. Well, that's how I am anyway. Mm-hmm. Do you have anyone who would be a bit of a sounding board for you? Like you work alongside Dan a bit. Would you guys sort of mentor each other? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I love conversations with Dan because he's a pretty humble guy, so you sort of got to push him a bit. But when you push him for information, it's amazing what comes out. And, I mean, he's formerly, you know, a scholarship runner in the US and he's had influences from real old school style American coaches that don't believe in stretching all the way through to sort of where he's probably now at in his career where he's sort of looking at that cutting edge sort of science-backed approach alongside the old school get the work done kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Dan's definitely someone I like to um, have conversations with. But another reason I've always had a coach myself is, yeah, they, they sort of become a mentor in a way. And Gordon Walker's obviously a wealth of knowledge. I think he's just won again, the Halberg Coach of the Year Award. So to be privy to um, what, you know, his thoughts are in and around coaching is, yeah, a bit of a privilege to say the least. Mm. Oh, amazing. Cool. And mm. with, with your own business and being self-employed, when was DA Endurance born? Yeah, it was probably in around 2015, I reckon, Um yeah, probably just sort of came about through conversations with um, people around town that were training for events and they would pick my brains on a few things they're doing in training and I was often a little bit horrified by what they were doing. So sometimes I would probably speak my mind a bit too much and and as it sort of evolved, people would say, well, um, can you sort of put that into a bit of a program for me? And, and so I started to do that and it just sort of grew organically in that way, really. I I think I had the, you know, the PE background and also by that stage probably a few years of racing and being coached by really clever people and I'd, without knowing it, probably done, you know, a pretty good apprenticeship in coaching. So um, it sort of just grew from there. Mm. And what did you do before you were like full-time coaching? Um, after university, I mucked around a bit, went overseas, did some sea kite guiding of all things. Um, cool. When I moved to Wanaka, I worked at the swimming pool as a lifeguard, which was actually perfect because it was a part-time job and so I could train a lot um, and it was reasonably flexible. And then when I started coaching, I'd actually started a part-time um, contract role as a strength and conditioning coach with Snow Sports NZ. So again, it meant that I had a bit of extra time to to um, have a side project, and that's where the coaching kind of came into it. Mm, very cool, yeah. And how how would you describe your coaching approach, and what makes you unique with your coaching? Uh, very individualized, and that's something I've had to probably stick to because a lot of people's advice is always, "How can you you know coach more people with um, out." putting more time into it and inevitably that's sort of where you start to build training templates and things and um, that's just never been me and it's not because I don't think that's a, an effective way to coach I actually think it's a very effective way to coach if you're a, a clever enough coach you can definitely develop training programs that are applicable to a broad population um, it's just not how my brain works and I've been really lucky to be influenced by um, again Val Burke would be the person who probably influenced me the most as I was starting out and that was always her approach too was she liked to really start to understand an individual and build a program for them from scratch that really worked into their unique lifestyle their um, commitments their schedule their injury background all that sort of stuff so um, I love to coach that way and it seems to come more naturally to me so that's sort of where I'm at. Mm. 
No, that's really cool. And I think people really appreciate an individualized plan and, you know, having catch-ups regularly, you know, talk about what's gone well, what hasn't gone well. And yeah, rather than just sort of a, you know, plan off the internet that <laughs> could end up just getting you injured or not suitable for you. So yeah, I think there's definitely um, value in individualized plans. Obviously, everyone brings their own unique kind of needs and expectations to the sport. So, um, uh, like I say, a, a template-style program, especially, say, if you've got a bit of a budget that you need to stick to as an athlete, um, can be really effective. Um, but, yeah, I totally agree with you. I think you can't really replace the value that comes from someone who's going to take a, a really individualized approach to your training and, and be adaptable too, eh? Because we might plan the week, but something might change during that week where circumstances are different. And so a coach that can kind of help it adapt the program as life gets in the way, so to speak, is, um, yeah, probably the gold standard in my mind. Because mm. you can tweak and adjust and keep moving forward rather than feeling, oh, now I have to start at week one again and here we go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and from a business perspective, what a... What are some tips you'd give to others out there who are maybe new to the business industry or starting up their own? Well, in my experience, the big one, which I sort of touched on, is really understanding your own uh, position in the industry and, and what your personal beliefs are and what you value. So as I say, there's there's been quite clever business-minded people that have come to me and said, hey, if you can build a really good, let's call it a half Ironman program and sell that to X number of people, um, that's pretty good money for a couple of days sitting on your computer type thing. And, and I'm not disputing the fact that what they're saying is true and probably quite clever from a business standpoint. But I think what, what I've managed to do relatively well and growing my own business has been um, just really staying connected to my beliefs and what I personally bring to coaching. And then you build the brand that's consistent over time. People familiarize with that brand and some won't buy into that brand and others will. So that would probably be the big one from my point of view. Mm, yeah, stay true to your values and yeah, you know, I guess you're not gonna be the fit for everyone. Um, but yeah, people who really want to work with you will respect that, and yeah, you'll. That's a yeah, good point. And I've mm. yeah, I have had clients in the past, and we've set everything up, and I've started that training journey, and it it hasn't been compatible, and I haven't been the right person for them. So you're absolutely right. You hear a lot of good feedback. Um, well, I hear a lot of good feedback, obviously, about my coaching from my clients and people around me. But it's probably important to acknowledge that um, I haven't been the right fit for many athletes too in the past. And I think uh, the best coaches are the ones that can recognise that and put their athlete first. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's been me that suggested they find another coach. Sometimes they've come to me saying that they're going to go and find another coach. So it's always, to me, it has to be athlete-centred. So, um, yeah. yeah, I haven't always been the right person, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Thanks, Dougal. Um, being a nutrition podcast, you probably quiz you about a bit of nutrition stuff. Um, what would you say over your time, so say like the last 16 years where you've been sort of more into the, the racing scene, what's been some of your biggest learnings with nutrition, both in day-to-day -day and also in, in the racing part of it? Well, in the racing part of it, 
the big breakthrough, and it's not very specific, so um, I don't know how helpful this is going to be, but the big breakthrough for me was actually planning my nutrition before the day. And I still remember Val, my coach at the time, sitting me down with an Excel spreadsheet and being like, right, you need to detail what you plan to eat on the bike and what you plan to take on the marathon. We need to punch those numbers into this column. We need to add all that up and see if you're hitting your requirements. And looking back, I'm thinking, man, that's the course I should have been doing that. But to that point, I hadn't. I'd literally, I remember the brand Leppin, and Leppin would say, take two to three per hour for endurance exercise lasting two hours or more or something like that. And so that's what I'd do. I'd be like, right, checking my watch. Okay, have another Leppin. So um, when I started to actually pre-plan race day nutrition, uh, it made a huge difference performance-wise. Even like cramp, I used to be a real bad cramper. Once I started planning my nutrition properly, and I, I got much less cramp incidents and things like that. So that would be the big one for race day nutrition. Um, for everyday nutrition, I'm always very cautious giving my athletes advice around this because A, I consider myself very lucky and that I seem to tolerate basically everything. So therefore I can just basically eat everything. And I like the taste of virtually everything. So I don't feel that well positioned to give advice on everyday nutrition, which is where having people like you to refer on to has just been awesome. Um, but I think underlying all of that is probably a key message for me, which is that I enjoy eating food. I'm not scared of food and I've got a really good relationship with food. So breaking my ankle in February is the first time I've broken a bone, which, you know, I've done some pretty high impact things in the past. So my bones are obviously pretty strong and robust. Um, my injury background's pretty good. Um, I've never been fixated on weight. Um, I, I've always felt weight is the byproduct of training well, sleeping well, eating well, those sorts of things. So I focus on that rather than, rather than weight. So yeah, I'm probably waffling a little bit, but, um, I think when all is said and done, I'll be proud of the fact and feel lucky too. I know not everyone's as fortunate as me, but just to have a good, happy relationship with food. Mm. Yeah, certainly not something a lot of, well, you know, all athletes could say, um, especially at a higher level. I would say it's actually more the disordered eating's more in the part of not the absolute elite top athletes, but sort of that bridge between, you know, quite high level and trying to get into the elite, that tends to be the real danger zone, I find. But yeah, it is a certainly a challenge, challenging one for a lot of people. What about with um, training? Would you say like relationship with exercise and balancing that, like you said, with family and other commitments has always been well done or has that been a real struggle at times? Yeah, definitely challenging. Um, and even, you know, from a nutrition standpoint w with the kids, you know, they, they can be a bit fussy. So you find, um, you know, you're changing your meal plan a little bit to, to suit them. So more potatoes and less salad and that sort of thing. So um, there's probably a little bit more at play there. Uh, but yeah, um, I think too with the kids, I, I try to um, serve like we always eat dinner as a family, for example, and I, I still try and serve them a range of foods knowing they're only going to eat a quarter of what's on their plate. But my hope is over time, 
they sit opposite me and watch me eat everything on my plate, that they start to pick away at the cherry tomatoes and maybe at some point they go, these don't taste too bad after all sort of thing. So, mm. um, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Talk to me in 10, 15 years and I'll let you know if that's worked or not. Well, it's positive role modelling. You know, they see dad eating the foods. Oh, well, I might eat them too. And that constant exposure of different foods, eventually they will start eating them. So keep working your way at it. You'll be, you'll be sweet. Um, do they eat Thanks. all that lovely venison you get? Yeah, do you know what? Um, Matilda, who's my five-year-old, if she could choose dinner every day, she would choose venison, which is um, pretty funny, but also pretty cool because, you know, a little growing body and she loves a bit of lean red meat, so um, that's pretty cool. But um, we try not to have it too often because I don't want them to get too sick of it. But we'd have venison at least once a week, maybe twice. Nice. Yum. Yeah, so good. Oh, yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dougal. I, um, I'd love to have you back on the podcast at another point, maybe to talk about your international adventures coming up. But is there anything else you'd want to touch on before we wrap it up? Uh, I would probably just want to finish by saying, um, well, obviously, thank you to you, of course, for having me on the podcast. And, um, and probably finally, just um, I do honestly mean it when I say to reach out, you know, if there's anything that we've talked about that um, people want to explore further with me, then I welcome um, messages through social media or email. You know, I'm not a rock star that gets a thousand messages a day, so I always reply to the messages I do get. So, um, yeah, just feel free to reach out to me if there's anything someone wants to explore further. No, that's, yeah, lovely. I'm sure people will appreciate that. Cool. Oh, thank you so much, Dougal. It's been great. And yeah, I'll leave you to the rest of your Monday. Thanks very much. Okay.